Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is artist, author, dancer and witch, Laura Tempest-Sakroff. Laura's artwork, which includes drawings, paintings, jewellery and talismans, embodies myths in the esoteric and has received honours and awards worldwide. She is the author of the best-selling books Sigil Witchery, A Witch's Guide to Crafting Magic Symbols, and Weave the Liminal, Living Modern Traditional Witchcraft, as well as the creator of the Liminal Spirits Oracle. In the interview, we talk about how Laura became interested in witchcraft and the magical practices she followed and developed alongside and as part of her artistic work, which led to her starting her own tradition with a group of like-minded individuals. We also discuss some of the more fundamental concepts of what magic is and how it works, the role of symbols and sigils in that, and how paranormal phenomena can be viewed through a magical lens. Enjoy! Laura, welcome to the podcast. Hi, great to be here. How did you get interested in witchcraft? Oh, I always go, what is your witch origin story? (laughs) (laughs) Not very original, I know. (laughs) I always feel like, you know, it's that like, how do I get this down to like three minutes or less? Um, You know, I've I've always been interested in the the unusual and the esoteric. I was sent off to art school at age three, so I was already seeing a bit um, more, <laughs> more, more of the world than I guess the average young children do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, fascination with um, imagery and art, you know, gods and goddesses and artwork that we find in the, the museum books. And, and uh, from there, also spent a lot of time out in um, the yard and, you know, immersed in nature. Uh, so, from very young age, I was already fascinated with the world and spirits and possibilities around me. But it wasn't until my teen years um, that I realized that there there were actually movements and or, organizations and other folks who who believed the same way. And uh, so that was a that was a wonderful revelation. I'm like, it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> so was there a particular point at which you took an active interest in the sorts of things that go into a magical practice? So, you know, I did a lot of hanging out in bookstores, uh, like you do <laughs> as a teenager. And when I discovered uh, Drawing Down the Moon, to me that was, uh, by Margot Adler, was one of the more um, practical approaches, uh, rather than a lot of the books that look like fantasy, you know, sci-fi novels. And you know, the idea of like, okay, there's there's a structure, there's a little more practice to it. And the being more conscious then of looking at the moon cycles and considering folklore uh, as a method to explore the world, to be a lens for the world around you. And that was that was the beginning of it. Besides art, I mean, it was a very easy slide into what I was already doing um, you know, as an artist, you know, taking a look at the world around me and how I, you know, I process the world is through my artwork. So you know, whether that's deities or visions, um, psychic uh, explorations, things like that. I was just taking it now to a little bit more of a, a conscious level. Um, so that was 
right, you know, somewhere in those teen to college years of, of crystallizing the practice. I'm always wondering how to best to sort of get started in a magical practice. I mean, when you started, were you doing things where you were trying to get results? Did, did you sort of need to prove these sorts of things to yourself that it worked or was it something slightly different? I think that's a good way of looking at it too, right? They like have to, you know, is this really, you know, is this in my head or is this the actual world? I think, I I hope that every magical practitioner goes through that, that of like, should I check in with reality? Is this reality? (laughs) For real. Uh, uh, So uh, there was, there's always a bit of that. uh, But I distinctly remember at one point uh, in my college years of, sitting down and going, all right, I'm going to create this series of artworks that are two-dimensional spells. They, you know, things that you would normally do a, you know, candle working and working with herbs or whatever, you know, whatever classical 3D uh, sympathetic magic spell, but instead do it through imagery, do it through uh, incorporating those elements directly into the artwork. So that involved ritualizing the space that I was working in, collecting the elements, lighting a candle, um, working through the image. I was doing printmaking, so I was going through the press um, and how many cycles it went through the press and then worked on it with um, you know herbs and charcoal and burnt things like that. So that was the first, like, this is really what we're doing, <laughs> constantly <laughs> setting out to do it. And those were three really powerful pieces of artwork that I still think about today. Uh, and so I think that was the here we are finally officially connecting all the threads and saying this this is what we're doing, and uh, so I, I would say that is that 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 moment of here we go we're not going back. <laughs> so I suppose, like you were saying earlier, it must have helped a little having this artistic talent. Did it make um, understanding magic and witchcraft easier? I believe so. I think if we look at magic as starting with thought and so much of what we do, you know, all of those elements, the colors, the oils, the candles, the herbs, all these things are part of really helping us visualize, you know, the, the process or the end result. So already having those strong muscles, at least in my right brain to, to visualize, to think about the image, you know, especially when it comes to working with deities of, uh, you know, other people tend to have to look at other images or statues and then going, okay, what do I see in my head? What are my experiences? And then I make a drawing of that deity or that spirit uh, to work with. And so I think that definitely, it definitely helps, you know, especially for folks who, um, you know, when you're a little bit more static or, you know, kind of thinking things absolutely always analytical, it's hard to use that more picturesque part of your brain um, to imagine, to play, right? There's a little bit of play that needs to be involved, I think, to, to let loose uh, for more effective magic. Hmm. You talk there about working with deities. That's something else I'm, I'm interested in. How did that happen for you? Was there just some god or goddess that really chimed with you? Or was there a tradition of working with a particular type of entity? So I grew up, <laughs> I'm the offspring of... Um, to put it succinctly, an Italian Catholic and a Russian Jew. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and primarily, though, it was right, mom one. So we all got raised Catholic. And <laughs> while I didn't, I really 
bristled at all of the church doctrine and the masculine representation of things. I didn't connect with that. I was very fascinated by the devotion to Mary. I mean, like that's the closest you could get to a goddess in, you know, that, that representation of Abrahamic culture. And so like, as a young person, like the, the, the May celebration, <laughs> like kind of go edging ourselves on Beltane and the, the saints, the female saints, like St. Lucy uh, and Bridget and such like that. It's an easy gateway drug <laughs> <laughs> to going, all right, you know, so there are um, feminine aspects of the divine to be explored. And I think the early deities, uh, Hecate, Hecate has always been one I've been close to, and a whole wealth of other ones. I explored um, in looking into the Mediterranean aspects, you have Aradia, um, and then in the Russian, there's a whole bunch of Slavic and Russian deities that it's very easy to dive into the folklore. So Baba Yaga or Baba Yaga um, really connected early with those as kind of sliding into, okay, well, I'm going to kind of amplify the, those Mary vibes <laughs> or something <laughs> a little more realistic. Uh, and then surely behind that were the horn gods. So working uh, Pan and Kernanus. Uh, so it's like, it's already, you already have that set of um, devotional concepts laid out for you. It's just a matter of going, oh, wait, this, this is actually a real thing. And pushing it to one step further of things that you can interact with and interact back with you rather than seeing deity as, as distant. Um, so, it was, you know, in some points it was easy and some points it was a little harder um, as you kind of battle with those, uh, those practices. Mm, and when you were doing that, I mean, did you learn by doing it? Something that I wonder about is like, I want to make sure I get this right because I don't want to <laughs> annoy this, this, this entity. Yep. I want to, I want to start off on a good foot. So, to me, it feels like it might be a bit intimidating, and that's maybe why I haven't really started trying it yet. Did you have that sense of intimidation when you were starting, and how did you get past that? If I did, I don't remember, <laughs> honestly. Uh, probably because I was so ambitious, you know, and being just young and very excited about everything. Uh, and ending up leading uh, a pagan society, you know, in in my late teens, early twenties, because you know, like, well, there doesn't exist. I'm going to create it. Uh, so, um, in approaching deities, I kind of looked at it the same way of like, well, let's start up a friendship, you know. That, and I think that's important. Uh, taking it just even out of that concept to every day is it's forming relationships. So if you instead of looking at everything as sort of this, you know, dude in the sky that's all knowing and instead look at yourself as being part of the divine structure and then working with these other entities are just different versions of us, right? There are different ways of being. Uh, and so if you look at it that way, as you're making a friend, you're building a relationship or some sort of acquaintance, at least, you know, and let's say you have to be buddy, buddy, <laughs> You know, best buds with gods uh that that sounds like a horrible <laughs> but fantastic book <laughs> uh, so you know the starting off with that because i i feel like so many people come from you know christianity or another sort of structured religion in such a way that they feel like all right I am not worthy and, and it has to be immediately the sense of devotion. I have to devote myself completely to some, you know, some God I've never really interacted with. Like, no, 
you know, it's like you don't want to, you're not going to just marry anybody on the street, right? You want to have, you want to have a cup of coffee first, a cup of tea, uh, <laughs> you know, have some cookies, uh, you know, build it up, go see a movie. Uh, you can build things up from there. And then it really deepens the relationship. And at the same time, too, I think that spirits and deities, as well as ancestors, understand where we're at and know that we're not perfect. And so they tend to, if they want to work with you, give you suggestions. You're like, maybe try this instead. Or I'm giving you these signals. This is, you know, pay attention. This is what you should be looking for versus, you know, imagining that something's going to come out of you, come out and say like, bad, bad human. I thwart you. You know, I smack you with hammer. Uh, you know, there. <laughs> I mean, that could happen with some deities, but I think most are fairly forgiving um, and considerate of our our human state. Mm, that's good to know. You talked a little just then about when you started uh, the pagan society. Was that the House of Anwin? Uh, yes, uh, they actually spawned out of it. So we had the the cauldron of Anwin or Anun. Uh, as the the larger society and then the tradition sort of emerged out of the larger group so we had open path and then figuring out people that worked well together for the tradition how did that start i mean how did that process of of um, forming that group begin for you the the larger group yeah yeah but i mean i going from doing your own thing to as i understand that you started you and two other friends, and then that formed into a larger group. Can you just talk a little about how that sort of progressed for you? Yes. Uh, so when I had ended up in Rhode Island the first time, I was really looking for crafting community to be a part of something and not really being in a position uh, fully to um, join a, a coven that would involve a lot of time. Uh, and especially time commitment, considering that it was in college, I was also newly married um, to somebody who was very controlling. Uh, and so kind of the idea of a, a more open, oh, you know, other college students, but also college age people could join, allowed for you know, exploring a lot of people's different perspectives and backgrounds. And it, that very organically happened, you know, to draw all of these people together. And at the same time, looking at, you know, I'm going to guide by how I know best. (laughs) So uh, taking what the three of us had started and sort of applying that within this group and then building it into a more formal tradition with other people. uh, You know, it's it's it really happens over time. I can't say that you're like, I'm going to definitely go do this This is what I want to set out to do. Uh, that definitely <laughs> that was sort of a thing that, you know, when you're young, you're like, I can construct a thing, but you really have to live it. Uh, and so it went from just being this whole bunch of witches coming together to a whole bunch of pagans coming together to, oh, not everybody's on the same page here. And so you, you find that there are a handful of people who see things more like you do or really work well together. You consider like a regular work environment, right? Uh, you know, if there's somebody in your office you don't get along with. And so do you really, uh, really want to have um, teams with them um, as a way of looking at that? So that, that was just the, the natural progression of wanting to have a more inclusive focal group um, that were all consistently interested in 
uh, a set of ideas or a way of approaching to ritual, especially bringing in movement and working with a certain set of deities. That's kind of how it evolved. That makes sense. Mm. And when you're in a group, does that mean that you will do more magical rituals as a group? Do you tend to then focus on group rituals rather than solo work? Or can you do both? No, I say it's definitely both. Uh, back mm. then, we were very much, you know, drawn to the idea of being um, a group together and to, you know, to meet on the whatever moon it was or on a Sabbath and uh, do that for, I think a lot of it's friendship, right? You know, especially back in the 90s, you know, things weren't as prevalent or available. And so you really, you know, were more drawn to finding those like-minded people and being with them. Which I think is still true today, but there's so many more resources out there that you don't need to have a group necessarily to explore that. You can do, you know, as we learned this last year online, there's an amazing amount of things that you can truly accomplish being online, um, finding that information. Uh, and when I when I moved from Rhode Island to California, that's where it came to like, well, I can't rely on the group structure to to give me the needs that I, you know, to, to satisfy those needs. Uh, and so going back to, oh, that practice I already had, I'm just going to amp it up a little bit more and consider how that looks. And they each also found that. So um, folks from that group, some of them found that there were other types of folklore they were more interested in, other traditions um, that they might have ended up joining other groups. But the thing is, like, I'm still friends with most of those people and we can still get together and have that unified sense of, you know, what brought us together back then. So it's kind of, it's part of the journey. Mm. I, I know in the forward of Weave the Liminal, you talk about how that happened and and you establishing a, a modern tradition of witchcraft. And I'm interested um, with a modern tradition, what is it that's modern and what is it that's traditional and how do they work together? Great question. So most obvious that we are modern. We are <laughs> <laughs> we are living in the modern day. And uh, I know it's a bit different for, for you in the UK, but especially here in the United States, um, there's so many of us are uh, transplants, you know, like you might have even been born in one state, but you know, it's you, you live or work in another or have gone through several, you might be, you know, I come from a long line of different people who slept with other people from different cultures. And so you, you don't have just this one, you know, here's this legacy that's been going through generations that this is what your grandparents did and your great grandparents did um, because this is the, where that they were doing in their job and their land. Um, it's, it's a lot more tumultuous. And so being able to flex to be able to move to be more fluid with those considerations is the modern aspect but the traditional is to still try to preserve those elements that have been passed on or if we haven't had them consciously passed on you know through family limit lineage or friendship or through learning a formal tradition that we do the research in the folklore whether where it's where we're living or where we're from to pull those elements together and I find that those often come 
almost rather easily, like they're meant to be unraveled. Like it's just sitting there below the surface and you just need to push the threads aside to see, oh yes, this is why this makes sense. And even though I've never read this myth before today, oh, it feels so familiar. Um, and so that's that that blending to use what has what has been there, but to be conscious that you're creating something brand new in the moment as well. Mm, yeah, I suppose it's like, a lot of things isn't it like you can take something but you're still doing it your own way mm-hmm. it's not about replicating it exactly how it was done it's it's you know it's it's relative to who you are and what you're doing in that moment yes yeah i i, I admire the folks who can do the reconstructionist <laughs> type mm. like that's a lot of dedication uh but i've just seen like yeah, you know, the longer that you're, um, you know, if you move around a lot, or uh, you know, you're in a position or a um, a job where things shift dramatically over time, you know, especially if you live in a city, you know, you have to, I think, be a little bit more aware, be a little bit more flexible about what's going on around you, and incorporate what's important to you. Otherwise, then it's just repeating things that don't. You know, don't excite you. That don't feel feel like they really are integral to your practice. And I think that witches have always adapted to the moment. You know, so many things over time. It's a matter of like, this works better. Let's try that. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Did you ever find? I'm I'm not sure if you would have because you you started a group. But did you ever find when you were practicing witchcraft and engaging in magical? rituals and things like that that it was isolating because witchcraft and magic they sort of have this there's a concept of them as um, non-mainstream and and occult which means hidden but mm-hmm. so did you did you find that what sort of things did you did you find that were difficult even though you were doing something that clearly you enjoyed that's fascinating because i think you know i think about uh where I'm at now and, you know, the majority of the folks I interact with on a daily basis, uh, though that, again, still living in um, pandemic times, is, mm. you know, if you, if you, who you're largely conversing with on a daily basis, I have the luxury of being, you know, an artist and an author, so I am, you know, I'm no longer going out to a nine to five <laughs> type of job. Uh, so it seems like my whole world is, is magical. And most of the people that I interact with are of that mind, even though we're, you know, we're all in the margin, you know, it was like the marginal fact, friend, marginal people attract other marginal people in some ways, uh, you know, that, that like-mindedness, but I do forget uh, (laughs) on occasion when, um, you know, when you have to interact with the, I hate to say the mundane world, but you know, folks who aren't into such things. Um, such as like, you know, when you have someone over to repair the heater in your house and you forget that there are, uh, bones hanging from the fireplace, and pictures <laughs> of, you know, horned deities and, and, you know, phalluses and, and crystals and things like that. And you're like, oh, right. These are not, no, you know, normal with big quotes around it. And then, you know, they, they come in, they get the work done really, really, really well and as fast as possible because they're like, I'm not hanging around here. Um, so there's there's that kind of um, static that I pick up on. But, I, you know, I've really, you know, really have lucked out where I've lived, particularly um, Seattle, I have, you know, spending eight years there is a very weird and wonderful city. 
Uh, and so most folks are, are accepting of the strange and unusual. And uh, Rhode Island is quite that way now. But I, there was definitely a harder time with it in the 90s and the early O's uh, of when um, ran up to run, ran into people who were like, nope, this is not cool. You know, and so I guess there's that sense of like, oh, am I am I doing something wrong? Nah, no, I just have to remember um, that everybody sees things the same way. Uh, but I also have discovered, though, if you you just keep being authentically you, the folks in your life who are, who think it's already a little weird, start picking up on it anyway. And then they're like, so I read this book. <laughs> like my, my parents now know more um, about witchcraft and magic than <laughs> I think most, most boomers. <laughs> so like, right. Yeah. It's kind of a rever- reverse osmosis. Yeah, and I think as well, sometimes people just need to see somebody else that's into it and then they'll sort of come out of their shell a little bit and start talking about it. Yes. From from my experience anyway, a little bit. So lots of people are interested in this stuff, but they, they just need that person that's really into it and can enthuse about it. And they're like, oh, I can talk to this person about this. <laughs> I admit this interest. Everybody has a ghost story, but, you know, people are like, I don't believe in ghosts. And then like three minutes later, but there was this one time exactly yeah 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 absolutely so something i'm interested in and uh, i really wanted to ask you is with your practice and with the work that you've done practicing witchcraft has it made you aware that magic is everywhere because i i know sometimes people describe magic as sort of a reality hack and i'm wondering firstly i'm wondering if that's actually true i don't know to be honest but also does it mean that that magic is everywhere. Uh, there's magic running in the background that doesn't need people to do it. Yes. Uh, it's, so it's fascinating. So um, I just am finishing up on my next book, which is Anatomy of a Witch. And part of that is like the first thing is the witch longs, which is recognizing that we're all interconnected. Uh, and that if you look at air as a metaphor, for magic, then you like you can't necessarily always see it, but you're breathing it in. It's part of you, and that you are also breathing out into it. There's an exchange. I believe magic is everywhere, and, and I, I don't. I'm not a fan of the word magic, but I have yet to come up with something to replace <laughs> it with. You know that, that doesn't sound hokey. Yeah. <laughs> modern day problem. These are the, it was a first world magical problems. Uh, I don't like the word magic, but, uh, <laughs> and you know, it is the, the, the essence between the spaces. Um, the, you know, if we look at everything as threads, then it's, it's what's happening in between. And as it's, you know, as they're being interwoven and the threads themselves. And I, I think that the more that people are able to start to see those interconnections, the more they see magic in everything. And you can look at it as magical. I'm trying to do this very specific thing. And when I do this spell, that is magic. Like, but you're already swimming in the ocean, right? It's, it's sort of like, I'm making a wave in the ocean, like, but you're already in the ocean. You know, so you're either working with the currents or against the currents. Uh, so um, kind of, I can kind of, I definitely see where folks come at as sort of magic as a way of, of a life hack, but no, I think that's more of like us remembering how it's done 
that if we you know go back to the caves if we go back to earlier states of ritual things that aren't you know overly complicated by social norm modern social norms in so many ways that we realize that you know our brains are incredibly powerful and that our bodies produce energy and that everything else around us is um, alive to some extent when you know, whether you look at it from an animistic part of way or very similar systems then suddenly everything becomes easier hmm. uh, a little more complex and a little mind boggling, but at the same time, it's like, all right, you're in the ocean. Good. <laughs> Big, you know, first one, the ocean exists. Second, you're in the ocean. Third, <laughs> now you have to swim. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose as well, the concept of magic being a, a, a hack, it, it fits into Western society, which is quite materialistic. Mm. It's along the lines yes. of getting things. I, I know that there are terms such as resource magic. Do you think that if you're using magic to get results, do you have to have a extra level of care about what you do because of the nature of what you're doing? Uh, I don't think of it as result oriented. At the same time, I'd always tell folks, if you're going to do a working, you should know what you're doing. <laughs> have a goal, you know, have somewhere to go with it, right? Uh, and you, but at the same time, it's like a painting, right? Like you should have an idea of where, what you want the painting to look at, look like before you start. Um, but then some people just want to enjoy, make a mess in the paint. So I guess there's a few levels of um, exploration in there. Uh, yeah, I think it's it definitely helps to to have a concept of where you're going. But I don't look at magic as simply you know, getting what you need out of it as sort of, you know, if you look at ritual as part of magic and daily practice, um, it's, you know, what, what is the result, right? Is it, I want a thing or do I want to be more connected? And I think that's where I lean into is kind of furthering that connection and the understanding with things around me and, you know, you know, helping to repair or build a pattern. Uh, so, you know, there's there's so many levels of it. There's levels of nuance for you know simple things of like I need to get a job to I am trying to overcome white supremacy. You know on a global level. <laughs> uh, so there's room for all of that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. Um, something else I'm I'm really interested in is the use of symbols, and you've you've written a couple of books about this, uh, including a, a witch's guide to crafting magical symbols. So can you talk a little bit about that and and how you start using symbols in these kind of practices? So, uh, yeah, so sigilatry, uh, it, it defines and explores the, the method uh, of how I create magic symbols. And it is a, essentially a deconstruction of something that I have built over you know, the last three to four decades of creating art. Um, because as an artist, you know, there tends to be an intuitive process that happens over time that when you sit down to make things, you're not so consciously thinking about what you're doing. Uh, but I had a lot of people interested are like, oh, when you draw this, that's really interesting. What is that? How did you do it? Like, oh, let me <laughs> let me reverse engineer how I've been doing this my entire life. And so I, I sat down and, and broke it apart and then started teaching it to other people. Uh, so sigils 
are magical symbols, um, or basically they are marks that are believed to have magical property and that are created by humans. So whether you draw it, that you paint it, that you etch it, that you dance it, um, those are all a way of looking at sigils. And it's it's a great way to approach spellcraft because it can you can be anybody from any level of experience, any background, uh, and start working with it. You just need to be able to to draw and to to sit and think a little bit, uh, and from there you can highly ritualize it or make it as simplistic as possible. So it's very accessible, and it has been it's it's tapping into that process I mentioned earlier. The caves, like going back to cave paintings, you know, thousands upon thousands of years, which you know are evident all across the planet. You know, whether you're going to you know, Australia or France and Spain or Indonesia or South America, like you see the, these cave paintings and drawings and that's tapping into that part of our mind. Um, that is the problem solver. Um, that is also the visualizer, which is also considered the magician, right? All of those things combined. So focusing your energy, drawing, enjoying the, the trance and the problem solving, Right, because to me, design is problem solving, and magic is also a bit of problem solving you know, to do spellcraft. Uh, and so, people can create these things you know, for a variety of different reasons and applications. Uh, and so, that's what the the book talks about, and I've taught workshops on that as well, so that more people get interested in in using art as a form of magic. Hmm. So, I suppose are all magical symbols sigils or? Uh... All sigils are magical symbols, but not all magical symbols are sigils. Is, is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> We're all witches, wiccans, and wiccans. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there are are definitely symbols, magical symbols that don't have really quite the purpose of a sigil. But um, yeah, I think that most. I would say you know one hundred percent, but I would think that most things that are created or drawn with a magical, magical intent tend to be sigils. Um, but the, the opposite of is everything else a sigil? <laughs> the process is important. You know, at the baseline of it, that process is very important. So uh, I think you could, you could debate back and forth um, and have a very good time. But in the end, you still have a drawing. <laughs> it's like, does, did it accomplish something? I think more, I'd, I like to argue of like, is this an effective sigil is this an effective magical symbol or is this one that basically is just a bunch of lines and squiggles that isn't going to get anywhere or is this just you know to look impressive but doesn't actually have any magical teeth mm. that's that's where i like to <laughs> get dirty I, I know from from chaos magic you create a sigil by taking a sentence of what you're aiming to achieve and removing all the letters so that there's only one example of each letter and then crafting the symbol, the sigil from that. Mm-hmm. With using symbols in other types of magic, um, is that different? I, I imagine it is, but I'm, I'm curious as to the variety that's available when you want to create a sigil. And, and how, how does it fit into a piece of spellcraft in, in general? I know that's a very broad question. I, I apologize, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just interested about that. <laughs> Well, the 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 difference uh, first for like the the more chaos approach of the the sentence and the letters um, is you have that that statement you hmm. make the statement, but 
uh, you know, take the statement and you make the the letters, um, you know, breaking it down and kind of deconstructing it. And in my method, it is more a matter of you, you have the concept, you know, the goal, which could be the beginning idea of the sentence, right? But then you're thinking about what elements lead up to this. So there's the brainstorming process of, okay, you know, I want to have love in my life. Well, what does that mean, right? Like, that's a really general statement. That's saying to the universe, eh, here's an open statement, fill it in however you want. Instead of if you brainstorm and you're like, oh, to have love in my life means, you know, I want to be in a committed relationship with somebody who respects me, um, you know, who does these things or, you know, I get this in my life. Like you brainstorm those things. So you start to visualize what does that look like? So you're getting that part of your brain, you know, that's tapping into magic and visualization there. And then you're applying these symbols. So instead of breaking things down, you're actually building something that your brain recognizes. And I, I like to um, say that it's very much like building a computer program, right? Like you figure out what your problem is, you write the program, and once the program is ready to go, you've pressed enter, right? And that's, you know, you've complete the sigil, your brain goes, hi, recognize this as the answer to that initial question or that initial statement. And so it responds in a, a little bit more focused uh, and to me i find highly effective way uh, and for folks who do more traditional spellcraft who do the, the the ingredient spells of sympathetic magic it feels very much connected to them because it's it's almost taking that same process right those little elements those guides and going these ingredients come together to make the thing that i'm looking for rather than the breaking down which there you know there's different philosophies involved you know, there's so much tied into the, if you d disperse it and you forget about it, then it happens easier. Um, I think that's latching into one part of the idea that's um, Austin Spare talked about, but it's not the whole concept. Uh, so that kind of gives you the difference of those in there, um, I think, breaking down or creating, crafting, building something up. And I think that our brains also like to find, <laughs> they like to find the, the shapes and the symbols and the marks and to find meaning in them. Um, I think it, it talks to a deeper, that, that uh, um, the entoptic part you know, of our minds, our visual core, to recognize those images and see them as being something where if you look, you know, you make a squiggle in the moment that's been the broken down elements of a sentence and letters, it might not have a great amount of meaning to it. And your brain goes, meh, you know, and especially when you're working with other people, there needs to be the thing where, you know, the shared magic sigils that you know, explain everything that goes into it. But people say, oh, I recognize these elements and I feel it. And so their connection to that sigil really helps push the magic forward rather than being something that feels really unfamiliar and very slippery. If that makes sense. Mm, yeah. So, I guess I imagined that a sigil would be created as part of a ritual, but actually it can be the making of the sigil itself is the ritual. And then you use that symbol. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people ask me about like, when do you charge the sigil? Like, well, you, you made it. 
the drawing, <laughs> the brainstorming process, the drawing process. That is the moment of you putting the effort into it. It is, if you want to call it, you know, liken it to raising energy, right? You raise the energy and then your brain goes, ah, good. It's done. It looks good. And you've released it. Mm. Going back to my question about magic running in the background in, in everyday life, I, similarly with symbols, I feel like sigils are everywhere, but sometimes I think people have created sigils and they're not called that. So especially with things like brands and logos, is that correct? Are there, are there, are there sigils that are running in the background of everyday life that, that aren't called that, but essentially are that? Absolutely. I think that most graphic designers are basically a type of, of sigil crafters um, because the, there is, you think about advertising, right? You know, the, the logos, yeah, brands and logos, um, as well as like health and safety. Yeah. All of those things are about tapping into that same part of our brain you know, that you see something enough that you recognize it, that you get a feeling, you know, you, that if you're doing, you know, if you're selling, um, home security, you want to have a logo that makes people feel secure, right? Or you make one, you create something that makes them feel threatened so that they want your security services, right? That's, that's two different ways of looking at that. Um, so yeah, there is all of this thing, like human beings, you know, that moment in time where we were able to draw, you know, with our fingers or a stick in the earth and make a squiggly line or make a dot and make an X, and recognize it as something in our environment or that it is part of a story or a part of identity. It's a huge thing for our brains, you know, and it is not a, a simplistic thing. It's an incredibly complex and wondrous thing. So, you know, to tap into that ability to draw, even if you don't consider yourself an artist is going all the way back to that moment and using that power and, you know, to just dust it off. And you can build, you know, keep using it and building it. Um, and then you do start to see it everywhere around you. Like it's in the architecture, it's in your street signs, it's on your phone, it's in your computer, you know, it's the internet, all of these things. We see these symbols and we acknowledge, we understand them or we dismiss them or we don't, you know, interpret them. You know, there's all the different levels, you know, thinking about looking at right now, like in the, the recording program of all the symbols that are on the screen. It's, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Something else that intrigues me is with that being the case and with there being so much symbology used in our world, do you think that there are entities behind that, beings that are doing that deliberately um, to, <laughs> to, you know, to make humanity act in a certain way, to buy the latest iPad? <laughs> I'm intrigued by that and in a kind of in like a, an American Gods style way. Are the um, is Wall Street going to be influenced by the ancient gods, but they just sort of maybe rebranded themselves a little bit? <laughs> oh, I love. Well, I love that story. I'm like, my answer is yes, and I would say <laughs> the entities are the humans. <laughs> Right, yeah. It's us. It is definitely us. Uh, <laughs> we are part of the spirit world. Uh, so the larger majority is it is us um, screwing around with us. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, tap tapping into our our own. You know, tapping into the power again. Those those um, you know magical graphic designers. Uh, but for I do think though that uh, deities, spirits, ancestors often 
communicate through symbols as well. So I think the the nuance there is, you know, we are often creating things to influence ourselves and the environment and each other. So there's that. And then there are ways that God's spirits, ancestors might use or communicate through those symbols, uh, not so much in a control sort of way, but more of a, how else are we going to communicate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when, when you look at um, veves in voodoo, right, and there's a whole bunch of different traditions that use similar things. Those are, are gateways, they're doorways, they're devotional things. And those are often sometimes co-created um, between the practitioner and the spirit so they say like, okay, when you need to call upon me, when we need to do this thing, this is the symbol that we use. Uh, you know, in the ceremonial magic, you get that with various, you know, the demons that this is how you communicate with this thing. Uh, so I, I kind of look at it as it's, it's part of it's either the things that we create as humans or we co-create with the, the other world, the, those, those limital entities uh, in order to, you know, further magic ritual ourselves, those relationships. Mm. Another thing that I've thought about is the nature of ideas. And if some ideas are actually kind of like entities in that they're, they're non-material and they want to manifest in the material realm, Absolutely. and we're sort of a conduit for that. Is, is, is that something that you think could be the case? I, I definitely think so. Uh, whether you look at it as the ideas themselves or if you want to attribute it to, to muses, mm. um, that is something uh, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in Big Magic, uh, which I think was the first time I've actually seen it put that way, um, that ideas you know could be conscious. But it's something that I've, you know, I've always talked about um, when it comes to matters of design, you know, as a, a dancer um, coming up with a costume and then somebody else, you know, across the planet comes up all, almost the same thing. You are like, but they didn't see it. So how did they do it? Right. And the idea that the, the muses are slutty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I, I like, you know, um, Elizabeth talks about the kind of the same way that ideas want to be born. Uh, and so if we, you know, when you start thinking about the world around us is all sort of, you know, star stuff that has its spirits, it's like, well, why can't um, things that we consider to be non-material, right, in our world? Well, again, this is the invisible having visible effects, right? An idea that I have for a painting then is brought through because of my mind, my eye and my hand into the physical world, right? So it had only existed in the, you know, on the little nerve endings, it's electricity in my brain, and then it becomes a painting, it becomes a sculpture. So I, I definitely, you know, whether one is subscribe it to the ideas themselves or kind of these little, you know, micro spirits, uh, or, you know, people like to say that it's a deity who is sending them out sort of like Cupid and his arrows. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I don't really worry too much about the specifics. I just know what happens. Uh, and I, and I really I kind of enjoy seeing that in the world uh, because you, you, you do you you see that repetition of uh, of ideas. there's the parallel myths, right that uh, that multiple civilizations come up with very similar solutions to problems 
And maybe that's it, is that the collective consciousness is coming up with, you know, like, here's a problem, how, here's a way to solve it. Uh, so whether that, you know, whether the ideas are conscious or that we're just tapping into that larger ball of yarn <laughs> and pulling <laughs> out from it, why not both? Yeah, definitely. I'm interested in the idea of, of duality as well, whether that's uh, a useful way of looking at things, because at times I feel as though reality works on a spectrum between material and non-material. And, but then at other times it feels as though there is a, a divide, but I'm, I, I kind of flip between both because at times it's, it can be easier to, to kind of understand something in your head one way, but then you think about it and go, well, but does that work? So, I mean, in, in your experience, when you, um, in, in your, in your art and everything that you do, do you find that you have different approaches to trying to understand these things or, or is it a case that you've learned over time and now you have a, like a, a more firmer understanding? I, I really go a little bit more flexible. Um, they kind of mm. embracing that duality because <laughs> it, it can, you can go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, right, so, you know, I, I love the concept of animism and it's great. And you think about, okay, well, this, this mountain has its conscious spirit and then, okay, the boulder from the mountain possibly has its spirit. And then maybe the rock from the boulder has its spirit. Then you go like, at what point does the dust still have consciousness? And is it its own spirit? Like, that's the sort of thing that can really give you a bit of a mind fuck <laughs> over time. It's like, we're, where at what point you know, are we slicing things up to to the smallness of it? Uh, and in problem solving, right for for magical means, whether it is uh, translating that idea of an image onto canvas or figuring out a ritual, how to do things, how to work with the deity, is I think you really have to be flexible and fluid in order to grow and to perceive deeper rather than believing that if I just do this set thing and, and there will be a result and it will look like this, it's like, well, what's the point of the experience if you already know exactly how it's going to turn out? Hmm. Uh, so, you know, why make the painting if I know exactly what it's going to look like instead of it's more of the process of it and the exploration. So I think, yeah, the finding you know, the playfulness between, okay, there's this reality and this existence, and then there's these things that I don't quite know. Let's just see what happens. And maybe I'll find out more about myself in the process if that make, if that makes sense. Hmm. I feel as though it can be helpful to sort of build a, a framework to, to try and understand things from because you then you have set reference points. But at the same time, I guess it starts to it can start to limit your understanding, can't it? And I, I suppose religions differ from spirituality, I guess, in that way, that they have more rigid frameworks, don't they? Yeah. Is it? Um, what is it? But, it, you know, religion is, is relinking. It's a set of systems, um, of guidelines mm. of, you know, like, we've already figured this out. Here you go. <laughs> uh, and for some people, they don't want to question any of that. But for other people, it's like, you know, especially like consider Judaism, it's like the, the a system of questioning and exploring and, and arguing, you know, in the margins of the holy book um, for centuries, which is great, I think, you know, to have those little arguments and discussions. Uh, and I kind of backtrack on what I, I said before about, you know, we do certain rituals because we 
we want to connect to the pattern, like much of what we do even our daily life. You know, when you get up and when you brush your teeth and have your cup of tea in the morning and when you have your shower and all the things that you do, right, those are rituals that often have the same result um, and they're comforting. And, you know, there are certain things that we do, you know, if you're in a tradition, right, this is, again, we talked about earlier is like the balance between modern and traditional is there is the doing the result because this is what's always been done, but then also having the flexibility to be like, well, what if we tried something new in this ritual today? Or what if we have the openness of the possibilities of it? So it does, it does also depend on if you need the desired result that has to be the same way, uh, or is it the community needs it? Like think about, you know, like a Beltane ritual and the expectations of we're going to do this with the maypole and this is how we're going to dance in and out. And then we're going to sing this song because it's about calling to, you know, what's in the land or what's in our ancestors or what's been done before. Cause it's also comforting um, versus, you know, meeting with a deity, um, for a, div- a divinatory experience, right? You might have these set guidelines for how you enter the trance, but you don't already have the plans for what is going to be revealed by working with that deity or that spirit. You need to be open to see what happens rather than be like, yep, I'm just going to get confirmation that this is a good idea. It's like, why even bother speaking with the deity if you've already decided what they're going to say? Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. In, in, you know, you've been practicing uh, magic and witchcraft most of your life. Um, how has that uh, influenced your understanding of things such as cryptids like Bigfoot or lake monsters and things like UFOs, other, other areas of the paranormal that, that seem to have um, not a direct connection to what we're talking about, but they seem to inhabit that same sort of area? Oh, I'm a I'm a big nerd. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, that stuff really cool. I uh, you know, along with you know looking at the world of magical practice and all those things. You know, growing up, I was watching In Search of uh, with Leonard Nimoy uh, and you know all of the um, mysteries of the unknown books from Time Life series. Uh, you know, and all of that stuff I found endlessly fascinating from you know Bigfoot and UFOs and all of that. Uh, where it fits in with magical practice, I, I think I look at more at um, folklore and possibilities uh, rather than anything that explains. Uh, hmm. Though I, I really, you know, no, I guess I like I like the idea of folklore um, and seeing where different ideas overlap in different places. And again, does it come down to solutions? Uh, versus, you know, some of the way that it's used to um, whitewash ancient or indigenous culture. Like, oh, you know, clearly these people couldn't have built the pyramids. It must have been aliens. Like that. That's <laughs> I don't I don't really quite appreciate that um, that side of the thinking, but more of the yeah. sure there are other you know why can't there be other people out there, uh, other civilizations out in the world? Um, you know what did happen to Atlantis? You know, like I love I love a good mystery and I love the stories around it, uh, and I think that tells us a lot about ourselves and our perceptions of nature as well as history. Yeah, I, I one one thing that I really enjoy about my interest is that it it's a great medium for challenging accepted norms. Mm-hmm especially with things like archaeology and the the story of humanity like how far back 
advanced complex civilizations go because i personally i think that it's much much longer than you know mesopotamia and, and sumeria there's you know there's this, there's sites like gebekli tepe which are very complex structures and and, and there's, there's more evidence now that the earth was hit by fragments of a comet thirteen thousand years ago which you know probably is influenced all the the flood myths that seem to be in many in many cultures across the globe so yeah mm-hmm. that's something that i i really enjoy about that is it is its ability to a it's really interesting and b it's it's just um it's a great way of, of thinking for yourself yes it, it is fun you know it, it's yeah yeah <laughs> it's good to stretch the mind and it's good to you know uh you're kind of watching um uh, Hellier, I really enjoyed how um, like all of these threads came together. I'm like, this is really fun and fascinating. I'm like, I know it's it's all also edited, but it's like, yes, you know, there is a reason why um, you know, we have the perception of things. And then I kind of wonder, like, well, where do sigils fit in with crop circles? <laughs> like, what does that mean? And you know, is that is it a hoax or is this a thing? Like, it's it it is. It's like it's good to just it's good to play. Um, and have that imagination and see connections as long as you don't, you know, go off the deep end with it. <laughs> like keep, keep a foot in reality, um, you know, in, in the current perception of things too. Mm. Something else that I love is reports of UFOs that have symbols on them, mm-hmm. which there seem to be lots of. So uh, the Roswell incident that there is reportedly symbols on that craft. There was another one, I think, in New Mexico, where an egg-shaped craft had a symbol on which looks like the this way up sign on a box <laughs> like an arrow it's like an arrow pointing up and i thought well maybe they found this craft but they needed to for their own reference they put an arrow on it to to tell them how to like get into it but i mean going back to magical symbols from from your perspective would that indicate that that UFOs have a magical element to them. I'm, I'm intrigued by that with the symbols on craft. I, I think it goes to, you know, we're, we're using them to tell larger stories. So, uh, you know, essentially what a symbol is, right, outside of a sigil, just a symbol, is um, a symbol is a condensed idea. Hmm. So this end up... <laughs> <laughs> it's like a dense idea that is relayed with an upward arrow, right? Uh, and so there's that. There's identity. We use marks for identity. Uh, whether this is my, you know, this is my object. That's your object. This is, you know, this place. This is that place. Uh, we use them for storytelling to help us remember, like as mnemonic devices. Uh, and you know, we use it for language for communication. Uh, you know, so there's all of all those different layers in there. Um, so, of course, maybe they're also using it for, for magical means. But then you look at our space shuttle, um, you know, it's got its name, you know, across yeah. the side. Of it. It's, you know, is there a form of magic in naming something that with like any plane? Um, once it's named, you know, it's sort of its identity, you know, so there is a level of magic in there, too. Uh which is pretty neat to think about. It's like once it's, it's, uh, you know, to use the expression christened, right? Like this is now the ship, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, it gets its sort of, it, you know, within that name, it gets its identity. It gets its spirit um, bestowed upon it. Uh, so you, you could look at it that way. Mm, no, that's, um, that's a really good point. 
Well, Laura, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. If people want to find out more about you and your work, how best do they do that? So there's my website, which is lauratempestzakroff.com. You can also find me on Instagram as alchemy.arts, and that is spelled O-W-L-K-E-Y-M-E dot arts. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you, Laura. Take care. When I was preparing for the interview with Laura, I was trying to think of an opening question other than, how did you get interested in witchcraft? But more often than not, with your guests, the best place to start is at the beginning of their involvement with the subject matter you'll be discussing. If you have any suggestions for differing opening questions, though, please let me know. They'll be gratefully received. It was a really fun interview to record. I'm in awe of the extent to which Laura's creative output extends, and it was interesting to talk to someone who is an artist and a witch to get an insight into the similarities when you're a practitioner of both those crafts and how they can work together. It was great as well to get her insights into how magic and symbols work in everyday life. That's something that I've been curious about for a long time now, and I'm sure will come up again in future episodes. I'm glad too that I remembered to ask Laura about what the purpose might be of the symbols seen on certain craft reported in UFO sightings. I meant to ask Sarita Diesti that same question when she was a guest on the show, and I totally forgot, but we got there eventually. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, and also sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of the Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. And you can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. There is a link for that in the show notes. Some of the Sphere will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Until then, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.